You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be talking about the ethics of artificial intelligence. At the highest level, is it ethical to use AI to enable, say, mass surveillance or autonomous weapons? On the flip side, how can AI be used for good to tackle pressing societal challenges? And in day-to-day business, how can companies deploy AI in ways that ensure fairness, transparency and safety? To discuss these issues, I sat down with Michael Chewy and Chris Wigley. Michael is a partner with the McKinsey Global Institute and has led multiple research projects into the impact of AI on business and society. Chris is both a McKinsey partner and chief operating officer at Quantum Black, a London-based analytics company that uses AI extensively in its work with clients. So Chris and, and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Terrific to join you. So this is a a big, hairy topic. Why don't we start with the broadest of broad brush questions, which is, are we right to be concerned? Is the ethics of AI something that, uh, whether you're a a general manager or a member of the public, something that we should be concerned about? Yes, I think the simple answer to this is that the concerns are justified. We are right to worry about the ethical implications of AI. Equally, I think we need to celebrate some of the benefits of AI. And I think the high level question is, how do we get the balance right between those benefits and the risks that go along with them? On the the benefit side, we can already see hundreds of millions, even billions of people are using and benefiting from AI today. And it's important we don't forget that. Across all of their daily use in search um, and things like maps, health technology, assistants like Siri and Alexa, we're all benefiting a lot from the the convenience, the um, the enhanced decision-making powers that AI bring us. But on the flip side, there are justifiable concerns around jobs that arise from uh, automation of roles that, that AI enables, from topics like autonomous weapons, the impact that some AI-enabled uh, spaces and forums can have on the democratic process, and even today, things emerging like deep fakes, which is video which is created via AI, which uh, looks and sounds like um, someone like a president or a presidential candidate or a prime minister or some kind of public figure saying things that they have never said. And so I think that all of those uh, kinds of risks we need to manage, but at the same time, we need to think about how can we enable those benefits to come through. You know, to, to, to add to what Chris was saying, I, I think you can think about ethics in two ways. One is, this is an incredibly powerful tool. It's a general purpose technology, people have c- called it. And one question is, for what purposes do you want to use it? Do you want to use it for gi- good or for ill? Uh, and again, you know, there's a question about what the ethics of that are. But again, you can use this tool for doing good things, for you know, improving people's health. You can also use it Uh, to hurt people in in various ways. And so I think that's one level of questions. I think there's a separate level of questions which are also equally important, is once you've decided, perhaps I'm going to use it uh, for a good purpose, I'm gonna try to improve people's health. I think the other ethical question is, in the execution of trying to use it for good, are you also doing the right ethical things? Because sometimes 
you can have unintended consequences. You can in, inadvertently introduce bias into various ways, despite you intending to use it for good. So I think you need to think about both uh, levels of ethical questions. So, Michael, I know you just completed some research in, into the use of AI for good. Just give us an, an overview. What, what did you find when you looked at that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we were looking at was how could you actually direct this incredibly powerful set of tools to improving um, you know, social good. We looked at 160 different individual potential use cases of AI to improve social good, everything from uh, improving healthcare and, and, and public health around the world to uh, improving disaster recovery, you know, looking at the ability to improve it, uh, financial inclusion, all of these things. You know, for pretty much every one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there are a set of use cases of AI where AI can actually help improve some of those, uh, you know, improve uh, our, our progress towards um, uh, reaching those societal development goals, sustainable development goals. Give us, some, give us some examples or a couple of things, bring it to life. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that AI is particularly good or the new generations of AI are particularly good are uh, analyzing images, for instance. And so that has broad applicability. Um, take, for example, you know, diagnosing skin can cancer. Um, you know, one thing you could imagine doing is, you know, taking a, a, a mobile phone and, and then, you know, uploading an image and saying, you know, training an AI system to say, is this likely to be skin cancer or not? There aren't dermatologists and everywhere in the world where you might want to diagnose skin cancer. So being able to do that, and again, uh, you know, the technology is not perfect yet, but can we just improve our ability, accessibility to healthcare through this technology? On a very different scale physically, you know, we have huge amounts of satellite imagery. You know, the entire world's landmass is imaged uh, in some cases several times a day. And in a disaster situation, uh, it can be very difficult for, to have find humans be able to identify you know, which buildings are still there, which healthcare facilities are still intact, where are there passable roads, where aren't there passable roads. And we've seen the ability to use artificial intelligence technology, particularly deep learning, be able to very quickly, much more quickly than a smaller set of human beings, identify these features uh, on satellite imagery and then be able to divert or you know, allocate resources, emergency resources, whether it's healthcare workers, uh, whether it's uh, infrastructure, construction workers, um, et cetera, be able to, to be able to um, uh, better allocate those resources more quickly in a disaster situation. So disaster response, broadly speaking, there's a whole set of cases around that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, a, a place where speed is of the essence and when the, these uh, automated machines using AI are able to accelerate our ability to deploy resources, it can be incredibly impactful. And in fact, one of the things that uh, I find most exciting about this is actually linking that to our day-to-day -day work as well. So We've had a quantum black team, for example, working with a city over the last few months on recovering from a major gas explosion on the on the outskirts of that city. And that's really helped to accelerate the recovery of that infrastructure for the city, help the families who are affected by that, help the infrastructure like schools and so on through using a mix of the kinds of imagery techniques that Michael's spoken about. And also the um, the commuting patterns, the um, the communications data um, that you can aggregate to look at how people travel around the city and so on, to optimize the work that those teams who are doing the disaster recovery were doing. And equally, we've deployed these kinds of machine learning techniques to look at things like what are the root causes of people getting addicted to opioids and what might be some of the most effective treatments 
through to things like the spread of disease in, in an uh, sort of epidemiology, looking at the spread of disease for um, diseases like measles in Croatia. So those are all things that we've, we've actually hands-on got stuck into in the last 12 months, um, often on a pro bono basis, bringing these technologies to life to really solve concrete societal problems. The other thing that strikes me in the research is that very often you are dealing with more vulnerable populations when you're dealing with one of, some of these societal good issues. So yes, I mean, there are many ways in which you can point AI at these societal issues, but actually the risks in implementation are potentially higher because the people involved are in some sense vulnerable. I think we find that to definitely be the case that, um, you know, sometimes AI can improve social good by identifying vulnerable populations. Uh, but in some cases, that might actually hurt the people that you're trying to help the most. Because when you're identifying vulnerable populations, then sometimes bad things can happen to them, whether it's you know discrimination or, or active malicious uh, intent. And so uh, you know, to that second level that we talked about before, I think how you actually implement AI within a specific use case also brings to mind a set of ethical questions about how that should be done. And that's as true in for-profit cases as it is for not-profit cases. It's as true in commercial cases as it is in uh, AI for social good. So let's let's dive deeper on those risks then. Whether you're in a for-profit or a non-for-profit environment, what are the main risks and ethical issues related to the deployment, AI in action? One of the first we should touch on is around bias and fairness. And we find it helpful to think about this in uh, three levels almost. The, the first being bias itself. And we might think about this where a data set that we're drawing on to build a model doesn't reflect the population that the model will be applied to or, or used for. And so there have been various controversies around uh, in facial recognition, software not working as well for, for women, for people of color, because it's been trained on a, a biased data set which has too many white guys in it. And there are various projects afoot to try and address um, address that kind of issue. So that's that's the first level, which is bias, which is does the data set reflect the population that you're trying to model? You then get into fairness, which is a sort of second level, and saying, look, even if the data set that, the, that we're drawing on to, to build this model accurately reflects history, what if that history was by its nature unfair? And so an, an, an example domain here is around uh, predictive policing. Even if the data set is accurately reflects a, a, his, a historical reality or a population, are the decisions that we make on top of that fair? And then the final one is around actually unethical. Are there uh, data sets and models that we could uh, that we can build and deploy, which could just be turned to um, not just unfair but actually unethical ends? And we've seen. Uh, debates on this between often the very switched on employees of some of the big tech firms and some of the uh, work that those tech firms are, are looking at doing. Different groups' definitions of unethical will be different. But I think thinking about it at those three levels of one, bias, does the data reflect the population? Two, fairness, even if it does, does that mean that we should uh, continue that in perpetuity? And three, unethical, you know, are there things that these technologies can do which we should just never do? Is it, is it for us a helpful way of separating out those some of those issues? I think Greg brings up a really important point. Uh, we often hear about this term algorithmic bias, and I think that 
suggests that um, you know the software engineer embeds their latent biases or or blatant biases into the rules of the of the computer program. And while that is something to guard against, I think the the more insidious and perhaps more common for this type of technology is the biases that might be latent within the data sets, as as Chris was mentioning. And some of that some of that comes about sometimes because it's the behavior of people who are who are biased and therefore you see it. Um, so, you know, arrest records, you know, being biased to, uh, against social, certain racial groups would be an example. Sometimes it just comes about because of the way that we've collected the data. Uh, and so I think that type of subtlety is actually really important that it's not just, you know, make sure that the software engineer isn't biased. You really need to understand the data deeply if you're going to understand whether or not there's bias there. Yes, I think there's that famous example, isn't there, of, of potholes in Boston, I think it was, right, using the accelerometers in smartphones to identify when people are driving, do they go over potholes? Well, and the problem with that at the time that this data was collected is that a lot of more disadvantaged populations didn't have smartphones. So there was more data on potholes in rich neighborhoods. I think there's, there's a bunch of other risks that we also need to take into account if if the bias and fairness kind of gives us a, an ethical basis for for thinking about this we also face very practical challenges and, and risks in this technology so for example at quantum black we do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry and we've worked on topics like patient safety in clinical trials and and once we're actually building these technologies into the workflows of people who are making decisions in clinical trials about patient safety we have to be really really thoughtful about the resilience of those models in operation, how those models inform the decision-making of human beings but don't replace it, um, so we keep a human in the loop, how we ensure that the data sources that feed into that model continue to reflect the reality on the ground and that, that those models get retrained over time and so on. So in those kinds of safety-critical or security-critical applications, this becomes absolutely essential. And we might add to this areas like critical infrastructure like electricity networks and smart grids, aeroplanes. There are, there are all sorts of areas where we have, there is a really, um, a really vital need to ensure the, um, the sort of operational resilience of, the, of these kinds of technologies as well. I think that this, this topic of the safety of AI is, is a very uh, hot one right now, particularly as you're starting to see it applied in places like self-driving cars, and you're seeing it in healthcare. Um, where the, the you know the potential impact on a person's safety is 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 very large, and so um, in some cases we have a history of understanding how to try to ensure higher levels of safety in those fields. Uh, now we need to apply them to these AI technologies because many of the engineers in these fields, you know, don't understand that technology yet, although they're 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 growing in that area. And so I think that's a you know important place for to to look in terms of the intersection of safety and AI. And the way that some people have phrased that, which I like, is, you know, what is the building code equivalent for AI, right? You know, I was re renovating an apartment last year and the guy comes around from the local council and says, well, if you want to put a glass pane in here because it's next to a kitchen, it has to be 45 minutes fire resistant. You know, that's evolved through 150, 200 years of various governments trying to do the right thing and ensure that people are building buildings which are safe for human beings to inhabit and minimize things like fire risk. We're still right at the beginning of that learning curve with AI, but it's really important that we start to shape out some of those building code equivalents for, for bias, for fairness, for explainability, for some of the other topics that we'll touch on. 
So, Chris, you just mentioned there uh, explainability. Just just riff on that a little bit more. What's the what's the set of issues there? Yeah, of course. So historically, some of the most advanced machine learning and and deep learning models have been what we might call a black box. We know what the inputs into them are. We know that they usefully solve an output question, like a classification question is an image of a banana or of a tree. But we don't know what is happening in the inside of those models. And so when you get into highly regulated environments like the pharmaceutical industry, and also like the the, the banking industry and, and others, the understanding how those those models are making those decisions, which features are most important, becomes very important. And to take an example from the banking industry, in the UK, the banks have recently been fined over 30 billion pounds, and that's, that's billion with a B, for mis-selling of um, personal protection insurance. And when we're talking to some of the banking leaders here, they say, well, you know, as far as we understand it, AI is very good at responding to incentives. And we know that some of the historic problems were around sales teams that were given overly aggressive incentives. What if we incentivize the AI in the wrong way? How do we know what the AI is doing? How can we have that conversation with the regulator? And so actually, we've, we've been doing a lot of work recently around how can we use AI to explain what AI is doing? And the way that in practice that works is we've just done a, a test of this with a, a big bank in Europe in a, in a safe area. So this is how the relationship managers uh, talk to their corporate clients. What are they talking to them about? And the first model is a deep learning model, which it, we call a propensity model. What is the propensity of a customer to do something, to buy a product, to, um, to stop using the service? We then, have a, and we then have a second machine learning model which is querying the first model millions of times to try and unearth why it's made that decision. So it's, it's deriving what the features are that are most important. Is it because of the size of the company? Is it because of the products they already hold? Is it because of any, any of hundreds of other features? And we then have a third machine learning model, which is then translating the insights from the second model back into plain English for the human beings to understand. So if I'm the relationship manager in that situation, I don't need to understand all of that complexity, but suddenly I get three or four bullet points written in plain English that say, not just here is the recommendation of what to do, but also here's why. It's, it's, it's likely because of the size of that company, of the, aid, of the length of uh, relationship we've had with that customer, whatever it is, that actually A, explains what's going on in the model, and B, allows them to have a much richer conversation with, um, their, with their customer. And just to close that loop, the relationship manager can then feed back into the model, yes, this, this was right, this was a useful conversation, or no, it wasn't, and so we continue to learn. And so actually using AI to explain AI starts to help us to deal with some of these issues around the lack of transparency that we've had historically. I mean, you could think about the ethical problem being, you know, what if we have a system that seems to work better than another one? But it's so complex that we can't explain why it works. These deep learning systems have it's just millions of simulated neurons. And again, trying to explain how that works is really, really difficult. You know, in some cases, the, the, as Chris was saying, the regulator requires you to explain what happened. You know, take, for example, the intersection with safety. If a self-driving car makes a left turn instead of hit, hitting the brakes, and it actually um, you know, causes property damage or hurts somebody. 
you know, a regulator might say, well, why did it do that? Uh, and it does come call into question, how do you provide a license? I mean, um, in some cases, what you want to do is examine the system and be able to understand and, and somehow guarantee that the technical system is working well. Others have said, you should just give a self-driving car a driving test and then figure out. And so I think some of these questions are, are very real ones as we try to understand how to uh, use and regulate these systems. And there's, there's a very interesting trade-off often between performance and transparency. Maybe at some point in the future there won't be a trade-off, but at the moment there is that trade-off. And so we might say for um, a bank that's thinking about giving someone a, a consumer loan, actually we could have a black box model which gets us a certain level of accuracy, let's say 96-97% accuracy of prediction whether this person will repay but we don't know why, and so therefore we struggle to explain either to that person or to a regulator why we have or haven't given that person a loan. But there's maybe a, a different type of model which is more explainable, which gets us to 92, 93% level of accuracy, and we're, and we're prepared to trade off that performance in order to have the, um, the transparency. And if we put that in human terms, let's say we're going in for treatment, and there is a, a model that can accurately predict whether either a tumor is cancerous or um, an, another medical uh, condition is um, is right or wrong. To some extent, as a human being, if, we, if we're if we reassured that this model is right and is, has been proven to be right in thousands of cases, we actually don't care why, why it knows. So as long as it's making a good uh, prediction that a surgeon can act on that will improve our health. So that we're constantly trying to make these trade-offs between which situations is explainability really important and which situations is performance actually and accuracy more important. And for explainability, it's partly an ethical question and sometimes it has to do with just achieving the benefits. So, um, you know, we've, we've looked at some companies where they've made the trade-off that Chris suggested, where they've gone to a slightly less performant system because they knew the explainability was important in order for people to accept the system and therefore actually start to use it. Because you know, change management is one of the biggest problems in AI and other technologies to actually achieve benefits. And so explainability can make a difference. But as Chris also said, that can change over time. Um, you know, for instance, I use a car with uh, you know, ABS braking systems. And the truth is, I don't actually know how that works. And maybe earlier on in, in that history, people were worried, you're going to let the car brake for itself. Uh, but now, in fact, that you know, we, we've achieved a level of comfort because over experience, we've discovered this stuff works um, almost all the time. And so I think um, we start to see that, see that comfort change uh, in an individual basis as well. So I'm going to ask a, a, a almost embarrassingly nerdy management question now. Stepping away from the technology, what's our advice to clients about how to address some of these issues? Because some of this feels like it's around risk management. So it's, you know, as you think about deploying AI, how do you manage these ethical risks, compliant risks? You know, you could phrase it in a number of different ways. What's the generalizable advice? Let me start with one piece of advice, which is um, as much as we expect executives to start to learn about every part of their business, I mean, if you're going to be a general manager, you're going to need to know something about supply chain, HR strategy, operations, sales and marketing. It is becoming incumbent on every executive to learn more about technology now. And to the extent to which they need to learn about AI, they're going to need to learn more about what it means to, to deploy AI in an effective way. We can bring some of the historical practices 
for you mentioned risk management. Understanding risk is something that we've learned how to do in other fields. We can bring some of those tools to bear here when we couple that with the technical knowledge as well. One thing we know about risk management, understand what all the risks are. I think bringing that framework to the idea of, of AI and its ethics, um, that actually carries over pretty well. Right. So it's not, it's not just understanding the technology, but it's also at a certain level understanding the, the ethics of the technology and at least getting your head what are around the, the ethical or the regulatory or the risk implications of deploying the technology. That's exactly right. Um, you know, take, for example, bias. Um, you know, in, in many legal traditions around the world, understanding that there are a set of protected classes or a, a set of characteristics around which we don't want to actually use uh, technology or other systems in order to discriminate. Um, that understanding allows you to say, okay, we need to test our AI system to make sure it's not you know, creating disparate impact for these populations of people. That's, that's a, a concept that we can take over. We might need to use other system, uh, other techniques in order to test our systems, but that's something we can bring over from our management practices previously. I think equally, as a leader thinking about how to manage the risks in this area, actually just dedicating a bit of headspace to thinking about it is a really important first step. And the second element of this, I think, is bring someone in who really understands it. So in... 2015, so three years ago now, we hired someone into Quantum Black who is our chief trust officer. And no one at the time really knew what that title meant, but we knew that we had to have someone who was thinking about this full time as their job because trust is existential to us. So what what is the equivalent in your organization? If you're if you're a leader leading an, an organization, what is the big what are the big questions for you in this area? And how can you bring people into the organization or dedicate someone in the organization who has that kind of mindset or capabilities to really think about this full time? And to build on that as well, I think you need to have the right leaders in place. And, and as a leadership team, you need to understand this. But the other important thing is to cascade this through the rest of the organization, understanding that change management is important as well. You know, take, you know, take the initiatives people had to do in order to you know, comply with GDPR. Um, you know, that's something which, again, I'm not saying GDP, if you're GDPR compliant, you're ethical, right? But, but think about all the processes that you had to cascade, not only for the leaders to understand, but all of your people and your processes to make sure that they incorporate an understanding of GDPR. I think the same thing is true in terms of AI and ethics as well. You think about everyone needs to understand a little bit about AI, and they have to understand how can we deploy this technology in a way that's ethical, in a way that's compliant with regulations. That's a, a true for the entire organization. It might start at the top, but it, it needs to cascade through the rest of the organization. We also have to factor in the risk of not innovating in this space, the risk of not embracing these technologies, which is huge. And so I think there's this relationship between risk and innovation, which is really important, and also a relationship between ethics and innovation. We need an ethical framework and an ethical set of practices that can enable innovation. And that if we get that relationship right, it should become a flywheel of positive impact where we have an, an ethical framework which enables us to innovate, which enables us to keep informing our ethical framework, which enables us to keep innovating. And I think that that positive momentum is is the kind of the flip side of this. There's a risk of not doing this as as much as there are many risks in how we do it. Let's talk a little bit more about this issue of, of algorithmic bias, whether it's in the uh, in the data set or actually in the system design. Again, very practically, how do you guard against it? 
It's a great question. And we really see the, the answer to the bias question as being one of diversity. And we can think about that in four areas. One is diversity of background of the people on a team. There's this whole phenomenon around groupthink that people have blamed for all sorts of uh, disasters. And, and we see that as being very real. So we have 61 different nationalities across Quantum Black. We have a, a, as many or more academic backgrounds. Um, our youngest person is in their early 20s. Our oldest person in the company is in their late 60s. And all of those elements of diversity of background come through very strongly. We were at one point over 50% women in our technical roles. We've dropped a bit below that as we've scaled, but we're keen to get back. So diversity of people is, is one big area. The second is diversity of data. We touched on this topic of um, the, the bias in the data sets not reflecting the populations that the, that the model is looking at. We can start to understand and address those issues of data bias through diversity of data sets, triangulating one data set against another, augmenting one data set with another, continuing to add more and more uh, different data perspectives onto the question that we're addressing. The third element of diversity is diversity of modeling. So we very rarely just build a single model to address a question or to capture an opportunity. We're almost always developing what we call ensemble models that might be a combination of different modeling techniques that complement each other and actually get us to an aggregate answer that is better than any of the individual models. And the final element of diversity we think about as diversity of mindset. And um, that can be diversity along dimensions like the Myers-Briggs type indicator or other all of these other types of personality tests. But we also, as a leadership team, challenge ourselves in much simpler terms around diversity. And we, we sometimes nominate uh, who's going to play the Eeyore role and who's going to play the Tigger role when, when, we're, um, when we're discussing a decision. You know, so framing it even in those sort of simple Winnie the Pooh terms can help us to bring that diversity into the conversation. So diversity of background, diversity of data, diversity of modeling techniques, and diversity of mindsets, we find all of those massively important to counter bias. So adding to the diversity points uh, that Chris made, there are some process things that are important to do as well. Uh, one thing you can do as you start to you know, validate the models that you've created is have them externally validated. Have, them, you know, have someone else who has a different set of incentives uh, check to make sure that, in fact, uh, you, you, you've uh, you know, understood whether or not there's bias there and understood whether or not there's unintended bias there. Some of the other things that you, you want to do is just uh, test the model either yourself or externally, for specific types of bias. Depending on where you are, there might be classes of individuals or populations that you are not permitted to have disparate impact on. And one of the important things to understand there is not only, you know, is race or sex, uh, you know, one of these protected characteristics um, and in a your model. And yeah. a protected characteristic is a very specific legal category, right? And, and it will vary by jurisdiction. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, yeah, depending on you know, which jurisdiction you're in, in some cases, the law states you may not discriminate or have disparate impact against certain uh, uh, people with a certain characteristic. In order to ensure that you're not discriminating or having disparate impact is not only that you don't have gender as one of the fields in your database, because sometimes what happens is you have these, you know, to get to get geeky, these co-correlates, these other things which are highly correlated with uh, one, you know, a, a, an indicator of a protected class. And so understanding that and being able to test for disparate impact is, you know, really a core competency to make sure that uh, you're managing for bias. And and one of the big issues once the model is up and running is actually how can we ensure that 
while we've tested as it is, as it's being developed, that it maintains in operation both accuracy and um, not being biased. And so we, we're in the reasonably early stages of this, I think, as an industry on ensuring resilience and uh, sort of ethical performance in production. But some some simple steps, like, for example, having a process check to say, when was the last time that this model was validated? Sounds sounds super simple. If you don't do that, people have very busy lives and they can just, um, they, these things can get overlooked. So building in those those simple process steps, all the way through to the more complicated technology-driven elements of this, we can actually have a second model checking the first model to see if it's suffering from model drift, for example, and then translate that into a very simple kind of red, amber, green uh, dashboard of, of a model in performance. But a lot of this still relies on having switched on human beings who maybe get alerted or um, helped by technology, but who engage their brain on the topic of are these models, once they're up and running, actually still performant? And all sorts of things can trip them up. You know, a data source gets combined upstream and suddenly the the data feed that's coming into the model is, um, is different from how it used to be. Um, the underlying population in a given area may change as, as people move around. Um, the, the technologies themselves change very rapidly. And so that, that question of how do we create resilient AI, which is stable and robust in, in production, is, is absolutely critical, particularly as we introduce AI into more and more critical safety and security and infrastructure systems. And it's a more general problem than just uh, you know, making sure that you don't have bias, the need to update models. Um, and it's made even more interesting when there are adversarial cases, when in fact, say for instance, you have a system that's designed to detect fraud. And people who are fraudulent obviously you know, don't want to get detected. And so they might change their behavior, understanding that the model is starting to detect certain things. And so again, really need to understand when you need to update the model, whether it's to, in, to make sure that you're not introducing bias or just in general to make sure that it's performing. There's an interesting uh, situation in the UK at the moment where the UK government has set up a, a new independent body called the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation that is really working on balancing these things out. How can you maximise the benefits of AI to society within, a, within an ethical framework? And the, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, or CDEI, is not itself a regulatory body, but is advising the various regulatory bodies in the UK, like the FCA, which regulates the financial uh, industry and so on. And I suspect we'll start to see more and more thinking at a, at a government and, and intergovernment level on these topics. And it, it'll be a very inter interesting area over the next couple of years, I suspect. So AI policy, broadly speaking, is coming into focus and coming to the fore and becoming much more important over time. It is indeed becoming more important. Um, but I also think that it's interesting within individual regulatory jurisdictions, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in um, aviation, whether it's in, you know, what happens on roads, the degree to which our existing practices can be brought to bear. So again, as I said, our driving tests, uh, actually the, the type of thing, the way that we'll be able to tell whether or not autonomous vehicles, um, uh, you know, should be allowed on the roads. Um, you know, there are a number of things that, that around medical licensure and how is that uh, implicated in terms of the AI systems that we might want to bring to bear. So I think that, that understanding that tradition and seeing what, what can be applied to AI already is really important. So what is the standard to which we hold AI? And how does that compare to the standard to which we hold humans? Indeed. Absolutely. And I think in the, in the context of something like autonomous vehicles, that's a really interesting question, because we know that 
a human population of a certain size is, that drives a certain amount is likely to have a certain number of accidents a year. So is the right level for allowing autonomous vehicles when it's better than that level, when it's better than that level by a factor of 10? Or do we only allow it when we get to a perfect level? And is that ever possible? I don't think that anyone knows the answer to that question at the moment. But I think that as we start to flesh out these kinds of ethics frameworks around machine learning and AI and so on, we need to deploy them to answer questions like that in a way which um, various stakeholders in society really buy into. And so I think a lot of the answers to fleshing out these ethical questions actually have to come from engaging with stakeholder groups, engaging with society more broadly, which is in and of itself an entire process and an entire skill set that you know we need more of as we as we do more of this sort of AI policy making. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Michael, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thanks. It's been great. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to learn more about our work on artificial intelligence, technology, business, and society, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.